we have to study it. I pray that you would make your truths clear to us and that we'd understand them and believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, as Michelle did a few weeks ago, I, you know, when any of us who, who have the opportunity to teach are indebted to many people, many people whose commentaries we read, they're, it's really wonderful. So uh, D.A. Carson, Arthur Pink, James Montgomery Boyce, R.C. Sproul, Sproul, John MacArthur, Steve Kreloff, and Bruce Mills have all uh, had a part in the message that I'm, I'm sharing today. So here we go. If I were to ask you, what's the most famous verse in the Bible? No doubt everyone would say John 3.16 and probably be able to quote it. It's one of the first verses children memorize. It's tattooed on arms. It's written on placards and t-shirts. And this morning in our study, we've come to the chapter which includes this famous verse. And when the Apostle John wrote this gospel. He told us why he was writing. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life in his name. And in this chapter, John tells us exactly how a person comes to have eternal life, and he relates the encounter of, with, uh, with this man, Jesus and Nicodemus, to make his point. So, uh, the text begins, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But what does John tell us about Nicodemus? First of all, we learn he's a member of the Pharisees. So that means he's a member of the strictest group of Jews who follow the law and the traditions of the elders. He knows the Jewish law. He studied it his entire life. John also tells us that Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. So this means that he's a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling political and religious group of 70 men that governed life in Jerusalem. So that means he was part of the political elite. So if you can think of the Kennedy family in Massachusetts in the 60s, 70s, and onward, that kind of power prestige would have been what this man would have had, but even more so in a religious sense. So in verse 10, John tells us that Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. So here is a man the entire Jewish community respected and admired for his teaching and his mastery of the Old Testament. This is the man who supposedly had all the answers. So why would he come to Jesus? Well, deep down, Nicodemus knows that he's a hypocrite. And in spite of his stellar accomplishments in education, politics, and religion, in spite of the fact that he has followed every law there is to follow, he is filled with nagging doubts about his place in the kingdom of God. And you know, when you're trusting in your own good deeds and your own righteousness, how do you ever know if you've measured up to God's standard? Nicodemus is acutely aware that Jesus lives in a completely different spiritual realm than he's ever personally experienced. Jesus has performed sign after sign, and Nicodemus is hoping a discussion with Jesus is going to provide him with some answers. Well, Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus answers the question that was on Nicodemus's heart, but he hadn't even asked. How can I know if I'm part of the kingdom of God? How can I know I'm going to heaven? Three times in 11 verses, Jesus uses the phrase, truly, truly, which could be translated this way. 
Mark this carefully. What I'm about to tell you is the unvarnished truth. And the truth is, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Entrance into God's kingdom requires one thing, spiritual birth. Now, in our culture, we are all familiar with the phrase born again. It's been part of our uh, political vernacular, part of our religious culture for a long time. But this was news to Nicodemus. He had spent his entire life observing the law, offering sacrifices, celebrating feasts, giving tithes, and doing everything he could think of to be considered righteous enough to enter the kingdom of God. And he was hoping that Jesus could tell him one last thing he should be doing or one last thing he could eliminate to assure his salvation or place in the kingdom. And what Jesus is clearly telling him is that all of his devout religious activity and his self-imposed moral behavior were completely useless. Jesus gave him no credit whatsoever and told him in no uncertain terms that he needed to be born spiritually. And literally, the Greek says, you must be born from above. uh, Admittance to the kingdom requires spiritual birth. Well, Nicodemus was flabbergasted. The last thing he expected Jesus to tell him was that everything he'd done so far was worthless. He replied, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus has just told him he can't get into the kingdom by anything he does any more than he could bring about his own birth. And Nicodemus essentially says, you're telling me that being born again is humanly impossible. And that is exactly the point. Just as you have nothing to do with your own birth, you also have nothing to do with your spiritual birth. I think John MacArthur put it well. He said, here is the heart of the gospel of grace, isn't it? All he had ever known was you earn it, you achieve it by religion, ceremony, ritual, morality, and human goodness. And for the first time in his life, he's hearing that God has to do something in his soul that is a work of creation that comes from above, and he doesn't participate in it, and he's absolutely stunned. Jesus answered, truly, truly, Mark this, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus initially spoke of the source of the new birth. He said it was from above. And here he now speaks of the means by which it occurs. It's by water and the spirit. They go together. So the question we need to ask is, what does Jesus mean by the term water? One interpretation sees water as referring to water baptism, but this isn't substantiated either by the text or really by biblical theology because the Bible clearly teaches no one's saved by any external rite of religion because baptism is a sign of what's already taken place in the heart and it's not the agent by which it takes place. So furthermore, uh, if we look at this, Christian baptism doesn't occur in the New Testament until... Acts chapter 2, so this isn't what Jesus meant, and neither does it refer to the water of amniotic fluid of physical birth. Jesus was not telling Nicodemus that to be born spiritually, he first had to be born physically. That's just nonsensical. Entering the kingdom of God requires being born of water and the spirit, so what is Jesus telling Nicodemus? What does he want Nicodemus to think about? To the Jews, water meant cleansing. Remember in uh, in chapter 2, the big, the, the, the urns that Jesus took the water and turned it into wine, 
they were there for ceremonial cleansing. So all, so whenever, okay, so anytime a person or an object became defiled or unclean, ceremonial washing was necessary for cleansing. And all of those washings were representative of the need to be spiritually clean in order to come into God's presence. And Jesus expects Nicodemus to be familiar with Old Testament passages, like one from Ezekiel chapter 36, where God says, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Well, that kind of sounds like being born of water and the spirit, doesn't it? And as long as a person is impure and spiritually dead, he can never enter the kingdom of God. It's not a matter of following rules. It's a matter of having a new heart. And only God can give spiritual life to dead men. So how does that happen? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26 gives us the answer. It gives us a glimpse. It says that Christ gave himself for the church so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So at the point of salvation, sinners, that's all of us, are cleansed who believe by the word as the spirit of God administers it to us. Through the word, we understand that we're lost, we're condemned to eternal damnation, and then the Holy Spirit draws us to Christ, we're regenerated and given new life. We had a verse that looked at this from 1 Peter, for you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is the living and enduring word of God. Romans, we learn faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So before anyone can enter the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit must cleanse and regenerate him. And this cleansing power by the, uh, this cleansing by the power of the word of God gives spiritual life to dead men. Jesus continues, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, the Jews thought that because they were Abraham's descendants and God's chosen people, they'd automatically enter the inner heaven. And Jesus clearly asserts that spiritual birth is not a result of having the proper genealogy. John has already told us this in chapter 1, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So you may have been born to Christian parents, raised in a Christian home, but none of those things make you a Christian or give you spiritual birth. R.C. Sproul said, your your flesh is powerless to enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of the spirit of the living God. Whatever you do in your flesh will avail nothing toward entering the kingdom. Well, the look on Nicodemus's face must have given him away. Jesus said, don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Jesus makes a play on the Greek word pneuma, which means wind, breath, or spirit. And he, he said, you have to be born of the spirit and it's like the wind. What can you do to control the wind? Nothing. It comes from above. We can't summon the wind. We can't send it away. We can't increase it. We can't stop it. 
We're very familiar with the wind in hurricane season. It's very apparent. We are powerless over the wind. And he is saying that everyone who is born of the Spirit is somewhat like that because spiritual rebirth is the work of God. It's invisible, it's uncontrollable, it's irresistible, and it's unpredictable. And so is the work of the Spirit in the lives of those who are given spiritual birth or life. It's completely and totally the sovereign work of God. You cannot cause yourself to be spiritually reborn. Nicodemus remains puzzled and his head is spinning. How can these things be? And Jesus doesn't immediately answer his question. Instead, he chides Nicodemus for his ignorance. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? And Jesus asserts that any knowledgeable teacher of the Old Testament should have grasped this truth a long time ago. Jesus makes it clear that his teaching on the new birth was based on the teaching of the Old Testament. Uh, one commentator said the shock that Jesus gave to Nicodemus is just as shocking to the 21st century church. There's an absolute requirement that must be met if a person is to enter God's kingdom. A person must be changed by God. The disposition of his heart, which by nature does not want to do God's bidding, must be altered by God the Holy Spirit. Man's natural tendency is to flee from the presence of God and to have no affection from the biblical Christ. If you have in your heart today any affection for Jesus at all, it is because God the Holy Spirit in his mercy and in his grace has been to the cemetery of your soul and has raised you from the dead. It's real powerful. Jesus goes on to say, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one's ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And Jesus is saying that he has the authority to speak about eternal truths because he knows them, he's seen them. He has come from the presence of God in heaven. And he tells Nicodemus that entrance into the kingdom absolutely depends on the new birth. And if Nicodemus stumbles over this very simple analogy, what point is there in going any further and explaining anything else about life in the kingdom? And Jesus confronts Nicodemus point blank that he does not believe Jesus' testimony about spiritual truth. He says, you do not accept our testimony, and you do not believe. So, does Jesus throw up his hands in frustration and disgust at Nicodemus' unbelief? No. He directs him back to the Old Testament. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Jesus refers to an event that took place during the Israelites' wilderness experience. Numbers 21 gives all the details, but God delivered the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, provided for their physical needs with manna in the wilderness, but as the journey continued, the people became impatient. They began to speak against God. They grumbled against Moses, and this was nothing short of rebellion, and God responded by sending a plague on the people. And there was this infestation of poisonous snakes. The venom produced horrible pain. I don't even want to think about that. Many people died as a result. But this was God's judgment against his people. Now, fortunately, this chastisement had its intended effect. The people repented, and God provided a remedy. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and then it shall be that, when, that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, 
And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anybody, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So what was Jesus' point in relating this story to Nicodemus? I think his intent was to make a comparison. That bronze snake on a pole was the means God used to give new life to the children of Israel. They were going to die if they were bitten in that plague of snakes. So by God's provision, new life was graciously granted. And Nicodemus was being challenged to turn to Jesus for new birth in much the same way as the ancient Israelites were commanded to turn to the bronze snake for new life after they'd been bitten. Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up. And in the Gospel of John, when we, the Greek word for lifted up always combines the notion of being physically lifted up on the cross with the notion of exaltation. So Jesus is speaking directly to what had to happen for people to enter his kingdom. He must be lifted up on a cross, and he had to take on himself the sting of death. He took on himself the poison of sin that was comparable to the, the, the venom from the snakes on the cross. Jesus tells Nicodemus that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Belief in the Son is how God gives eternal life. And what must have sent an already confused Nicodemus even further into a tailspin was that Jesus says, whoever believes. Now, the Jews believed that when the Messiah came, he'd save Israel. He'd punish all the pagan nations for their blasphemy, idolatry, and their mistreatment of Israel. And now Jesus says, whoever believes, he says nothing about Moses, nothing about Abraham, nothing about the temple, nothing about the tabernacle, nothing about the law. He simply says it's about believing in the son of man who's lifted up and whoever believes will have eternal life. Well, the foundation of Nicodemus's racist world is crumbling. Why was he a racist? Because he hated all Gentiles. And he cannot process what Jesus has just said. Anybody who believes will escape judgment, be forgiven, and given everlasting life because salvation is by faith alone. Well, what must Nicodemus be thinking? Why in the world would God give eternal life to anybody who just believed in him? Why don't the people who keep the rules follow the law and do everything they're supposed to do? Why don't they move to the front of the line? Why is eternal life for anyone who believes and not just the Jews? How can this possibly be? And Jesus answers that question in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why? Because God loves the world. Nicodemus thought that God loved the Jews and hated the Gentiles. And here Jesus says that God loves the world, a world that's made up of fallen, evil, depraved people completely unable to save themselves. There is nothing in this world of people that attracted God's love, but God loved the world that hated him. Salvation is available to anyone who believes precisely because God loves the world. How much does he love it? enough to give his only begotten son. And the word begotten actually means unique or one of a kind. God gave the person that he loves the most to show the extent of his love. Why did God do this? So that whoever believes in him should not perish, not end up in hell, but have eternal life because God provided a way out. 
So we must ask the question, what does it mean to believe in Christ? And I think it means three things. It means to believe that God is the loving father that Jesus said he was. It means to believe, secondly, that Jesus is God and what he says is true. And thirdly, it means an unswerving, unchanging, unquestioning obedience to that belief. That's what saving faith is. It's not just saying like Nicodemus did, we know you've come from God. No, it's more than that. It's putting your life in his hands. Now, Jesus doesn't say that everyone will be saved. He doesn't say there are many ways to be saved because all roads lead to God. He doesn't say if you believe in me and follow the Ten Commandments and get baptized, you'll be saved. He doesn't say that if you're basically a good person and your good works outweigh your bad works, at the end you'll be saved. He makes it clear that those who don't believe will perish. Many years later, Paul wrote, There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The question is not, why is there only one way, but why is there even one way? And the answer is because God loves the world. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John's meaning could not be clearer. Jesus came into the world to save people. And by virtue of our sin, we stand guilty before God. Jesus came into an already lost and condemned world. He didn't come into a neutral world to save some and condemn others. He came into a lost world in order to save some because God's purpose in sending Jesus was to bring salvation. Jesus reiterates that there are two categories of people and two eternal consequences in verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those who look to Christ escape condemnation. Those who refuse to trust him compound their guilt by not believing. People are condemned to hell not for something they did, but for what they didn't do, and that was believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not believing is the one unforgivable sin. So with consequences like hell standing in the balance, why would anyone reject Christ in his offer of salvation? And John tells us, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for, that his, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. There's one reason people don't believe in Jesus. They love their sin. And Jesus shines a light that exposes their evil deeds. People don't come to the light because they prefer moral darkness. It's not because the gospel is intellectually untenable. It's not because they're good people who are misguided. It's not because of ignorance. Men prefer to live without God because they instinctively understand they're guilty before God. And they refuse, in spite of that, to submit to his lordship and authority. Now, John uses the word evil twice in these two verses. I think this is really important. He says their deeds were evil, and he says those who hate, who do evil, hate or detest the light. And my question is, would Nicodemus have thought that his fastidious adherence to the law and the traditions of the, of the elders was evil? Did he think of himself as an evildoer? Not for a second. He was a good religious man, but his religious works are described by Jesus as evil. And we need to think of evil from a biblical perspective. Evil is not just sins like murder, lying, cheating, stealing, and committing adultery. Evil has its roots in disobedience to God because God alone defines what is right and what is wrong. Every lofty thing that exalts itself in pride against the knowledge of God and his glory is a form of evil. 
people who are morally good and kind but don't believe in Jesus are greatly deceived because they don't think of themselves as evil. Very religious people who trust in their own righteousness to get to heaven are just as deceived as the atheist who does not believe in God at all. Jesus calls it all evil. And we need to understand that evil, as Jesus defines it, is not just the bad things we do, but the good things we do in an attempt to prove to God that we are not as bad as he says that we are. And until a person comes to the point where he sees and understands the evil in his own heart and that he's guilty before God, he will never understand his need for a savior. That is why we need to quit telling people we witness to that Jesus can give them purpose or Jesus can solve your problems or Jesus will give you a better life because that only confuses the issue. We need to, uh, MacArthur says, we need to do is shine the light of pure righteousness of Jesus Christ as brightly as possible on the sinner and see what happens. See if they, they run. They're either going to reject Christ because they're more attached to their iniquity or by the grace of God, they're going to turn and run to the truth because they see that only Jesus can, can, has payment for their sins. So uh, Jesus continues, he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And this person makes it clear that the lover of light is not some intrinsically superior person. If someone enjoys the light, it's because all that's been done in that person's life has been created by God and done through his power. For those who believe, there's confidence, assurance, and joy in knowing that Jesus has shined his light in our hearts. And in spite of that, he's washed us, cleansed us, and given us new life. He knows everything anyway. And there's no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. And Jesus loves his own perfectly. So the application is quite simple, isn't it? Have you believed? Do you run to the light or from the light? Have you cast yourself on the mercy of God asking him to forgive, to give you new life? Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. <clears throat> well, after this discussion with Nicodemus, John tells us that Jesus went into the Judean countryside with his disciples and he was spending time with them. And at this point, John's focus shifts from Jesus to John the Baptist, who was still baptizing people with the help of a number of disciples. And even though John had pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we see here in chapter 3 that John still had some disciples. And these were followers who found it impossible to transfer their allegiance to Jesus. And as more people went to Jesus and his disciples to be baptized, they were gripped with envy. As they saw the ministry they were involved with beginning to lose its popularity. And finally, John's disciples came to him with their concerns. He who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you've testified, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. Well, not only was John not perturbed by the increasing attention Jesus was receiving, he was pleased about it. A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. And he recognized that every talent and ability that we have and every ministry we have has been given to us by God. But not only that, God has called each one of us to the place where we are in this life. In Acts 17, 26, he determined their appointed times. He, the Lord, did and the boundaries of their habitation. So you are exactly where you are because of God's wisdom, mercy, and grace. And deep discontent over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things betrays not only unbelief, but the worst form of human sin, the arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. And John understood this very well. 
You yourselves are my witnesses. I said, I'm not the Christ. I've been sent ahead of him. And from the beginning, John had declared he was the voice crying in the wilderness. He was the forerunner of the king. He had pointed to Jesus, and now his testimony to the Messiah was bearing truth. John elaborates, I'm not the bridegroom. The bride isn't mine. The bride belongs to Jesus. But guess what? I'm the best man. I get to go to the wedding and I get to stand right next to him. And for John, this was an unspeakable privilege. The rising prominence of Jesus floods him with surpassing joy because that's exactly what he'd been working for. He must increase. I must decrease. And John is saying that this is all necessary. It's not optional. And John finds great joy in embracing God's will and the supremacy it assigns to Jesus. And this is really a picture of true humility. John tells us why this is necessary. He who, he who comes from above is above all, and he who's of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. John could call people to repentance and to baptism in water, but he was not from above. He who comes from heaven is above all. The one from above is the only one who can give new life that comes from above, and that's Jesus. John closes by saying, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John returns to the theme of the discussion between Jesus and, and Nicodemus. We've seen from chapter 3 that being a good religious moral person does not get you admitted into the kingdom of God. But what we're going to see in chapter 4, that living in a moral life does not preclude you from the kingdom either. John makes it clear there's one criterion that God considers, and that's belief in Jesus. He who has the Son has life. So my question to you today is, do you have him? And also, does he have you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And it's so difficult. It's so challenging. And I pray that your word would be clear. And I pray that we would, each one of us, look at our hearts um, and understand our situation before you. I pray that you would, you would draw us to yourself and remind us of your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.